don't know if I'll have enough for everybody or not, but um, does it, did, did anybody bring, bring yours back? <laughs> we got a few. Isabel did. I think I just got three pages tonight, so <clears throat> just the first three pages is all we're going to be looking at. It's the same one. Yeah, I, only difference, one I'm handing out tonight is just, it don't have the cover sheet. It just has the first three pages of the text. That's the only difference. <laughs> oh, me. Yeah, I guess that's what happened. <laughs> uh-uh. Yeah. Owen called me, I don't know, Monday I guess it was, and they, they just done a spiritual children's at their church and another church for a uh, Appalachian camp or whatever. Yeah. There was 13 children from their church came back to Jesus Christ. Amen. 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 Uh-uh. Really? Yeah. Oh, really? Wow. Wow. Yeah. Well, God was definitely working in that, wasn't He? As bad as that tragedy is. All right, we are studying a very early, early church document called the Didache. And um, I, don't, I want to remind you tonight that this is not a Holy Spirit-inspired document as far as we know. Now, the reason I say that is because um, it very well could be, but we have to be careful. There were certain criteria, and we went over this whenever we did our last study about how we got the Bible. Do you all remember that? There were certain criteria that had to be met before the church would in unison completely agree and say, we know that this is from the Lord. This is a word from the Lord. Same way the Old Testament did with the prophets. You remember that? They said, well, how are we supposed to know whether or not a prophet is truly from the Lord or not? Because there were false prophets, right? There's always been false prophets, false apostles. They are. Jesus said there are false Christs. They're going to continue to be false Christ up until the day He comes back. And so we are warned to make sure that we test the Spirit, as the Bible says, and know that it's of God. We have a responsibility to know it. One of the ways that the Bible told us that we would know, as far as the Old Testament goes in the prophets, they said, if the word that He speaks, because when He comes, He says, thus says the Lord, right? If whatever it is that the Lord supposedly said never comes to pass, or the opposite comes to pass, what does that tell you about that prophet? But if it did come to pass, then he said, you will know that this is a prophet that was from me. We also know that he gave them signs and wonders. Remember when Moses was supposed to go to Pharaoh? He said, you go to Pharaoh and you tell him to let my people go. Thus says the Lord, let my people go. And Moses said, well, 
How is he supposed to know? How are the people supposed to trust that you've really sent me? You remember what God said? He said, what's that in your hand right there? You remember what it was? A stick. He said, what, what, what did he tell Moses to do with it? Throw it on the ground. And when he threw it on the ground, it became a snake, right? And then he said, reach down there and pick it up. Moses reached down there and he picked it up and it became a stick again. And then he gave him other. And the, the point being is that God always provided evidence. Whenever He sent His Word out, there was absolute evidence to back up that this indeed is a prophet of the Lord, that this indeed is an apostle of Jesus Christ. And so one of the criteria that must have been met was that there had to be absolute assurance and unison of understanding that a document had prophetic influence behind it or it had apostolic influence behind it. If it did not have one of those two things, then it was not considered the Word of God. It was cast out at that point. Now the interesting thing about this document that I give you is that most believe that it actually predates probably all of the New Testament. There is some controversy that says that it might have been written under the influence of the Gospel of Matthew and the book of James, the letter of James. And so those that most believe that if it, if it does not predate the entire New Testament, that it at least predates all of it except Matthew and James. And the reason being is because as we go through it, you'll see much of what Matthew said in the ministry of Jesus and much of what James taught in his letter as well. And so they believe either James and Matthew and their letters were influenced by this document or vice versa. We don't know for certain. Here's one thing we do know. By the second century, now what, what, what years am I talking about with the second century? 100 to what? 200. Now, I know that's confusing because second century we normally think 2 to 3, right? But that's not the way it was, because the first century would have been zero to one. You see what I'm saying? And so by the second century A.D., there were church fathers that we still have those writings today. Um, Origen was one of them. Um, Clement of Alexandria was another. There, there were several church fathers that actually quoted this document as they were giving teachings and giving sermons and, and, and writing letters to other people. They would quote and say something to the effect of, as is written in the Didache. And now for many years this document was lost. All we had was those references from these early church letters that nobody knew what he was actually talking about. But somewhere around the 18th century, this document was found in full form. And, um, and we have it again today. I'm telling you that because I am saying that the, the title of this, the, the Didache is a Greek word, or Greek or Latin, I can't remember which one, but it's a word that means the teaching. That's all the word means. It means the teaching. And the long um, title for this is The Teaching of the Twelve Apostles to the Nations. And so there are many people who believe this was likely the very first document that the apostles ever sent out to other churches to give them some type of guide. Most believe that this is a, a baptismal catechism. Now catechism, again, is just a fancy Greek word that uh, means to instruct. It means this is what we teach. And so 
Many people believe that this is an instruction booklet that gave teaching for candidates of baptism. And so, for instance, before uh, the early church would have baptized somebody, they would have took them through these teachings right here to understand that this is the kind of life that is expected and should be seen from someone who is saying that they have been buried with Christ and the old man is dead and they have been given new life in Christ Jesus and they are disciples of His. You see what I'm saying? And so whereas today, let's just be honest, most of churches today, we just send somebody through the water and we say, you're saved, you're born again, nothing else has to change. Just go on and live your life however you want to live, go on back out in the world and do your thing and that's kind of the way that we treat it if we're not careful. Well, for years, the church actually was responsible to truly have a way to instruct their people that were supposedly disciples of Jesus Christ. This is likely, I say likely, because all I know is that the early church fathers referenced it at least as a trustworthy document. I'm not saying that the apostles actually wrote this and that we will consider this Holy Scripture today. Uh, again, I think that's very dangerous ground. Are y'all tracking with me? So as we teach this, I'm only teaching it because I have went over it myself and I see nothing that contradicts what we know as the Word of God teaches today. And I see very interesting things in it that I think could draw us back to at least a little better place of true discipleship than where we are today in the church. Does that make sense? So as I teach this, it's important you understand. We're not referring to this saying that this is absolute authority, it is infallible, and no matter what this says, we go by. No, that would be the Bible. And the Bible alone. Alright? But because the early church fathers recognized this as a document that was worthy of teaching and worthy of quoting, I think that it at least is not uh, uh, being, um, me being a heretic coming in here teaching this document. So I need to give that uh, preface, if you, if you will, so that we're on the same page of that before we get into this document. We, we don't. Again, all we know is that the early church fathers utilized this and they quoted this in many of their letters that they were teaching, um, sort of like well, the way we would quote Scripture today. So like if I'm teaching on fasting on Sunday morning and I said, as Matthew 6, 18 says this right here, that was the way that early church fathers utilized this document. And so to me, that's just interesting, all right? Now, this is not something I would bring in here on a Sunday morning. You know, we're not going to do a series on the Didache through our Sunday morning messages. But for a Wednesday night Bible study, especially when I'm looking at catechisms and different ways of giving instruction to the people of the church and doctrine, then I think it's interesting. And it was one that I really wanted to spend just a little bit of time in. Um, I want you to notice that in the very first part of this, in chapter 1, he, it starts out by letting this baptismal candidate know that there are two ways that you can go. There are two ways. One way leads to life, and another way leads to death. So in other words, 
it's very important for the new believer, if you will, to be able to understand that if you are truly a born-again Christian, there are only two ways in this life. And you are either following the way that leads to eternal life, or you are following the way that leads to eternal death. And we have to be able to understand that a true follower of Jesus Christ should be able to look at their life and see that I am following Jesus. Am I still uh, having sin in my life that I have to repent and confess? Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. But there ought to be... If so, it's kind of like John said in 1 John. He said, A person that says they walk with God and yet they practice sin, they're a liar. They're a liar and the truth is not in them. Because God is light and in Him there is no darkness at all. Right? And for me to say I am in Him, but continuously live in darkness, is that possible? No, because in God is nothing but light, and in Him is no darkness at all. And so if we are in Him, we should see light in our life. That doesn't, again, doesn't mean that we don't have areas in our life that we're still working, that we're still fighting against our sin, because we do. But we should have a practice in our life of seeking to follow Jesus, of learning from Him, of, of desiring to be like Him. And so there are two ways. There are one way that leads to life, one way that leads to death. But notice in the document there's a great difference between the two ways. I'm going to go, go through these quickly because I've already been through them one week. If you want to slow that down, go back and find that YouTube video two weeks ago and you can watch it there. But he says, the way of life then is this. Here's the way of life. First, you shall love God. And what is the reason why we should love God according to this next part? So the first step is that we, the first way to life is by loving the God who made us. He made us. He made us for a purpose. He made us for a reason. And the first way is that we follow Him because He made us. The second way is like it. And that is that we love our neighbor as ourself and that we do not do to another what you would not want done to you. And so whenever we are following this way, the way that loves God, and the way that loves our neighbor in a way that we don't do to them anything that we wouldn't want them doing to us. If we love God the way that we're supposed to since He made us, and love our neighbor that way, then we're in the way of life. There's no question about it. And you ought to be able to see these things, these qualities, in the life of a believer. And he says next, and of these sayings, the teaching is this. So now he gives the teaching of what this life looks like that loves God as your Creator and loves your neighbor as yourself. And so he names just a few. The first one, of course, is that this person blesses those who curse them. This is tough because this is not something we want to hear. No, instead, the truth of the matter is, is that the normal thing would be to return the curse. But Jesus instead demands that if we follow Him and we're loving God and we're loving our neighbor 
so that we're not doing to them what we would not want them to do to us, then we're blessing those who curse us. That's the teaching of how we live that way. And the reason I say that is because I've got a book right here. You don't want to read it because it takes me five or six days just to get through two pages. All right. So, but this is a, um, a commentary, if you will, over the Didache. And it literally takes each Greek word of the Didache, just like a Strong's Concordance would do, and it opens it up and it shows you how this word is used in other places so that you can get the best interpretation of what the author meant for you to get. And one of the things we learn is that the word used here in this section for enemies, so in other words he says, bless those who curse you and pray for your enemies. So the people who curse you, They are your enemies. This word is a word that's used for one who acts aggressively against me by cursing me. Literally, they are speaking evil against you. I want bad things to happen to you. This is the kind of person that the the man that loves God and loves his neighbor, Christ calls you to bless him. He wants evil towards you. He wants bad toward you, toward your family, and your responsibility is to bless Him. That's a high calling, right? That's a tough calling. But that is the calling of someone that is following the Lord Jesus Christ. Someone that is in God who is light and there is no darkness whatsoever. And so Jesus demands a blessing instead of cursing. Another teaching on this is that we pray for them. We not only speak blessing to them, but we pray for our enemies, he says. And this is probably a prayer most believe for their forgiveness and for their salvation. The same way that Jesus did on the cross of Calvary. These are the people that just nailed Him to the cross. And you remember what He prayed for them? Father, forgive them. Because if they really knew what they were doing, Now, did he mean that they didn't know that they were putting nails in his wrist? Did he mean that they didn't know that they were smushing a crown of thorns on his head, that they had whipped him with the cat and eye Is that what he meant, that they didn't know what they were doing? No, he meant that if they really understood what it was they were doing, they probably wouldn't be doing it. And that's true for you and me and our enemies. If I really understood what I was doing to God when I sinned against Him, if I really understood what the payment... If the payment was paid immediately, how many sins would you quit doing? Pretty quickly. But because He is long-suffering and patient and kind instead... We continue to do these things. And the prayer I believe that we should pray for our enemies is a very similar prayer. A prayer for their forgiveness. A prayer for their salvation. And then notice he adds the next thing to it, and fast for those who persecute you. We have been learning that fasting, 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 fasting your prayers. So fasting strengthens your prayers. And so ultimately I believe that this entire commandment is about the way that we love our neighbor because of the way that God loves us, right? And because God loves us this way, we should in turn love our neighbor this way. And so our responsibility as Christians is to understand that a person that wants to claim to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, there is a certain way of life and an instruction for you to follow. 
And is that not what we've been talking about, about the Great Commission? We go into all the world, we preach the gospel, we make disciples of all nations, we baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then what do we do? Teach them to do what? To observe everything that Jesus commanded. And all of these things, you can go back to His famous Sermon on the Mount and you can find every one of these commandments. These are not just things that Jesus told us to do for us to look at and go, yeah, that's just too high high calling for me. No. This is the calling. This is it. And so we are called to love others the way that God loves us. And so we are to... We are to bless them instead of curse them. We're to pray for them. We're to even go as far as fasting for them to strengthen our prayers for them. And this is, this is the heart that God calls us to. And notice what he says next. He says, For what reward is there for loving those who love you? In other words, again, it is a high calling. But you're looking for a reward for serving the Lord, right? You want to hear him say when he comes back, Well done, my good and faithful servant. Do you want to hear that? And so he says there, if you're expecting to hear well done from him, if you're expecting to receive a reward for him, then you need to understand that there is a part you play in this, in serving him to a certain capacity. And so we serve him by loving those that don't just love us, because all the world, even sinners love people who love them back. That's easy to do. But, notice what he says next, but, but love those who hate you, and you shall not have an enemy. Love those who hate you, and you basically will continue persisting in this love to the point that you will eventually, hopefully, stop their aggression towards you. And it's the same thing that Paul taught. We don't overcome evil with more evil, but how do we overcome evil with what? With good. And by doing good to them, you heap hot coals of fire on their head. Um, the, the point being is that whenever we love these people the way that God loves us, we are more likely to actually not have an enemy, but instead they're going to see something different in you. Because if they strike you on the left cheek, what do you do? If they take and they come and steal your coat from you, or your shirt from you, what do you give them? If they come and demand that you do something to go a mile with them, what do you do? You go. That's right. And so you see what I'm saying? Is that no matter what the enemy tries to do to you, he can't, he can't take anything from you because you, you would give it all anyway. And that's a high calling, guys. But I'm telling you, that is the calling that we have been called to. And this is the life that Christ would command us to live. So, he says next, he says, um, abstain from fleshly and worldly lusts. So in other words, if, if you have desires in you that are led by anger and led by jealousy and led uh, by um, uh, having a short fuse, whatever the case may be, then it's very important you understand that you're not going to be very Christ-like in those. So you need to abstain from those fleshly and worldly lusts, and instead, here's what you should do. If someone strikes your right cheek, turn to him the other also, and you shall be perfect. 
even as your Father in heaven is perfect. If someone impresses you for one mile, go with him too. If someone takes your cloak, go, go with him, give him also your coat. If someone takes from you what is yours, ask it not back, for indeed you are not able. Give to everyone who asks of you, and ask it not back, for the Father wills that all should be given of our blessings, free gifts. And so, in other words, since we are called to a total abandonment of greed, is basically what he's saying. We're called to a total abandonment of all greed. We're not worried about losing our shirt. We're not worried about giving our coat. We're not, we're not worried. We know that everything that we have is not ours anyway. It just came to us from God the Father. You know, I, I, I think about this a lot, but when we go to Guatemala and we watch that mother that has, I can't remember how many, I always forget how many children she's got. Six, seven, I couldn't remember how many it is. And she has one little basket of molded tortillas left that she's trying to... Um, trying to ration out to be able to make sure that her and her kids don't starve. And I can't help but think to myself, why did we deserve to be born in a place that we can provide for our children and not have to worry about that? I mean, what did I do to deserve to be here and her and her family to be here? And the only difference between her and I is simply the grace of God. That's it. And the Bible tells us that because God has blessed me with His gift, now my job is to take His gift and now to bless others. And so I am only a piece of conduit. But the problem is you and I get to a point that we believe that we're the end of God's blessing. And is that not the, the mistake the Israelites made? When they told Abraham, God told Abraham, I'm going to bless you and then through you, all the nations of the world shall be blessed. Now we know that ultimately he was talking about Jesus Christ. But we also know that he was talking about the physical blessings, about the way that they follow the Lord and introducing the world to Him as they follow Him. They were just a piece of conduit that the blessings of God came through and went to the rest of the world in. And this is where I think we're called to abandon all of our greed and to a point that we are willing to give to all, to anyone. Notice what he says next. Give to everyone who asks of you and asks not back. For the Father wills that all should be given of our own blessings. Free gifts here. Happy is he who gives according to the commandment. For he is guiltless. But here's a warning to the one to who receives it. Woe to him who receives it. For if one receives who has need, then he's guiltless. But he who receives not having need shall pay the penalty, why he received and for what. And coming into confinement, he shall be examined concerning the things which he has done. In other words, we're going to be judged. We're going to be judged for how we gave. We're going to be judged for how we received. And so that's something to make sure that all of us are warned about. And he shall not escape from there until he pays back the last penny. And also concerning this, it has been said... Let your alms sweat in your hands until you know to whom you should give. So there's a warning to the receiver and there's a warning to the giver. 
that yes, while you are supposed to be open and freely giving to abandon all greed, at the same time, you do have responsibility to give to those that actually have need. To give to those that actually have need. And we let our own sweat on our hands until we know that this is something that, that we should bless someone else through what God has blessed us with. And I believe this again is instruction for a disciple of Jesus Christ. Chapter 2. Notice the second commandment of the teaching. Still the same teaching. Teaching of the way of life. Here it is. You shall not commit murder. You shall not commit adultery. And this word adultery is concerning married people because we're getting into different sexual immorality right here. And he says, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not commit uh, pederasty. And in this day and time, pedophilia was a pretty common practice, believe it or not. And so this is something that has to be taught on, that, that this is not the way that a Christian lives. All of these things are sexually immoral, and they are not the way of life. They're not the way of loving God who created you, and they're not the way of loving your neighbor as you love yourself. And so we don't do, we don't do that. And then he says, you shall not commit fornication. So he's making differences in sexual immorality. First is adultery, talking about married people having sexual immoral relations outside of their marriage. And then um, people that have, that have relations with younger children here. And then he talks about fornication. Or in this word we would be looking at anything that is sexual outside of God's design. That's what fornication would be. If I, if I remember right from the commentary, the actual Greek word is pornea. And again, where we get our word today, porn. And ultimately, it is the word that encompasses all sexual immorality. No matter which way you want to look at it, it's all encompassed under fornication or um, pornea in this particular case. Also, it says, you shall not steal... You shall not practice magic. And so here in the word magic here, we're talking about someone that's attempting to manipulate for personal gain. Let me show you an example of it. Look at Acts chapter 8 in your Bible. Because most of us, when we think of magic, we think of Harry Potter. <laughs> and... Um, and that's not necessarily what it's talking about, even though it can actually apply in some ways. But I want to show you exactly what it's talking about. Acts chapter 8, verse 9 through 11. Because this is where the same word is used, alright? But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city, and he amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. So he's manipulating, right? He is deceiving in some way, trying to... He doesn't necessarily literally have special powers or something. He's not necessarily just abracadabra, but he is doing things that is manipulating and deceiving people in a way that makes them think that he is some amazing guy with special abilities and powers. And look what it says next. 
And they all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest. So he's trying to manipulate and influence these people with false and with, with falsity and lies in order to get gain for himself. Look what he says next. They say this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. So again, when we're talking about not practicing magic, the heart of this is we're talking about not trying to lie and manipulate and deceive people in such a way that we are trying to gain personal attention, personal glory, personal uh, great standing. And in this case, they even said, well, it's from God. I would have likened this today to Benny Hinn. Y'all know who Benny Hinn is? I would have likened this today to Peter Popoff and his miracle spring water. I really would. I would have likened this kind of thing today to those kind of people that claim a, a special power from God and a special ability. And there are so many people that follow them and that uh, get their attention. And the truth of the matter is, in my opinion, this is exactly what he's talking about when he says we don't manipulate, deceive, and lie to people in a way that, um, that, that gets personal gain. For us, That's not the way you love God who made you, and that's not the way that you love your neighbor as yourself. You don't do that. Notice he says next, he makes another difference. You shall not practice witchcraft. Now this is the word that we are talking about um, mediums or uh, necromancers. This is people like if, um, if we were to go, and I've said it a lot, go down to 2nd Street to the Three of Cups and have your tarot cards read. Or um, you wanted to go and sit with somebody who could speak to the dead on your behalf and bring, and bring somebody, you know, this again. This it falls under the same line of manipulating and deception for the purpose of personal gain. But ultimately, this is also, they weren't hearing the truth of God in this like the prophets because the prophets would come to them and tell them this is what the Lord says. The mediums and the necromancers would come and say, this is your destiny. And this is your fortune. And this is your future. That's not the truth of God. That's the exact opposite. Those are lies. Those are deception. And I believe that's the heart of this. Because the truth of the matter is, yes, there are demonic influences and demonic powers. I'm not denying that. But there is really only one power. And that's God Almighty. And He is in control of all the other powers. Either He gives permission for Satan to do something and use His power for this or that, or He doesn't. And so at the heart of this, I really believe we're talking about lies and deception and manipulation. The same thing they were doing, I think it says it here in a few minutes, but the same thing they were doing whenever they were talking about sorceries. That's another word used in the Bible. And that's a word that is, uh, the original Greek word is actually pharmakia. What is pharmakia? What, where, what word do we have today that comes from pharmakia? Pharmacy. And what does a pharmacy do? So sorceries in biblical times was where these priests of these other gods, they would give you um, 
um, sedation, I guess is how I should put it. They'd give you some kind of drink or some kind of drug that would sedate you in a way that would bring you into the spiritual realm. Alright? And so, these are the type of things that they are saying the way of life for a disciple of Jesus is not by using lies, deception, and manipulation is not by um, seeking falsehood through fortune tellers and through seeking a voice from the dead, but just listening to the voice of God. And it's not through taking some kind of uh, um, sedation that gets your mind into a completely different state. No, all of those things are not the way to life. And so he cautions us away from that. And then notice what it says next. You shall not murder a child by abortion. This was also a common practice in ancient Greece. It was very common for abortion to take place here. And not only that, but it goes even further. Notice what it says next. Nor kill that which is born. In other words, it's one thing to have an abortion before the child is even born. It's another thing when the child is born to kill the child after that. And so they're saying that a disciple of Jesus, I'm telling you, listen to me church, if you are a disciple of Jesus and you're on the fence about abortion, there's a problem in your heart. I'm not saying we can't sympathize with, with, with people that have difficult decisions to make, right? I mean, you think about it. God forbid one of our daughters gets raped and becomes pregnant. Are you going to have a difficult decision on that? I mean, I'm not telling you that we can't sympathize. I'm not telling you that we can't have compassion. But I'm telling you that God creates all life. And if you are going to love God who made you, you are not going to kill that which He makes. You see what I'm saying? And so it's very important that we understand the way to life is not a way that approves abortion or that does abortion or that kills that which is born, but instead, just the opposite. We stand for the sanctity of life. And we fight for it. And that's exactly what we do here in this church. And then he says next, You shall not covet the things of your neighbor. You shall not swear... And so here we're just getting into the, the Ten Commandments of how you actually love your neighbor, right? The way you love your neighbor is you don't covet the things he has, but instead you thank God that he has them. You thank God that God blessed him with that. Um, and, and instead of being jealous about it, instead of being envious toward that person because you don't have it. You have to understand, the only reason he has it and you don't is because God gave it. That's it. Why did God do it? It's just His grace. Don't mean He deserved it more than you. No, it's just His grace. Same way with Joseph and his brothers. Y'all remember that? Was it Joseph's fault that his daddy saw him as the favorite? But his brothers killed him for it, right? They coveted the things that he had. It wasn't his fault. It was just the favor of the dad... Toward Joseph. That was it. 
And you can say the dad was wrong for it or not wrong for it. I don't know. You can try to say that God is wrong for showing grace toward this one and not toward this one. I say God's God and He's the Father of all. He can do whatever He wants to do. That's what I say. And so we have a responsibility here to to not covet and not be envious of what God does with God's things. If God wants to bless you with something and not me, that's between you and God. That's between you and God. And I'm thankful that God saw fit to bless you that way. Alright? <clears throat> and you shall not bear false witness. And this would be uh, telling a, a lie. Or not swear. First off, we're talking about speaking falsely. This word comes from a Greek word that talks about perjury or breaking oaths. In other words, if you, if you swear in this context, this is um, you... Um, saying I'm promising that I'm going to do something then you're not fulfilling it. That's what it's talking about here. You're not the kind of person that does that. A disciple of Jesus should be a person that is, tr- that is trying to walk in the truth. That if you say you're going to do something that you are a person of your word. You know, the truth of the matter is that's what I believe Jesus meant when He said let your yes be yes and your no be no. You are to be a person that if you say yes to something then that's just what it is. That's right. Um, I shouldn't have to stand before you with my hand on a Bible, uh, one hand on the Bible and one hand in the air that says, I promise you that I'm going to do this and this and this. We ought to be the kind of people that we ought to be able to just look at each other and say, Fagan, I, this is what I'm going to do. And then if we're all following Christ, Fagan ought to be able to look at me and say, Okay, it's good as done. It's, it, this is the way that we are. We don't swear. We don't bear false witness or tell a lie or testimony against our neighbor. You shall not speak evil. Um, you shall bear no grudge. Um, you shall not be double-minded. And here we're talking about somebody that is a, a doubter. To be double-minded would be kind of like... Um, you remember in James where Jesus told... Uh, or not, in, not Jesus. In James where James told us... If anybody lacks wisdom, let him ask. And God gives generously to all who asks. But let not that man doubt. What are you doubting? You're doubting the Word of God. In other words, God just told you that He gives generously to everybody who asks for wisdom. And now if you ask for wisdom... But in your head you're going, yeah, but I just don't know if he's actually going to do it. Uh, what, that's the kind of double-minded that we're talking about. A disciple here hears the Word of God, and as far as he is concerned, it's done. God said it, that's all I need to know. I, I trust it, I'm not double-minded. And so this is the way that a disciple is. A disciple is not double-tongued. In other words, he don't say one thing here and then one thing over here. He speaks the same no matter where he's at, no matter what he's talking about. Um, this, is just, this is just what it is. And so these are just simple uh, ways that we walk in the way of life. Again, that as a disciple of Jesus, as a person that has accepted baptism, and baptism, again, is what shows that we have been buried and our old sins are washed away, and that we have risen up to walk in new life that Christ has given us, and this is the kind of lifestyle and the instruction that we are taught to model and to live, live out in our lives.
All right, we'll stop right there, and, um, and then we will pick up there next, next week, okay? Um, I'm not going to re-go back over that part again. So we are going to pick up right there next week, and uh, hopefully if there's new people here, they'll be able to go back and watch the YouTube video and pick up where we are. But um, we get into some interesting things in here. We get into some instruction in how we conduct ourselves in the church and how we treat uh, preachers and teachers, and we get into different um, uh, titles like apostles or prophets in here. And so we're going to talk about what those are and biblically what they, what they are. And so we're going to get into that as well.